Well, grab a seat, church. If you have your Bibles, Acts 11 is where we're going to be. We have a couple Bibles if you need one. If you didn't bring a Bible and you'd like to follow along with us, we have some Bibles. Anyone need a Bible this morning? All right, Acts 11 is where we're going to be. I want to pray one more time as we do before we get into the Word, and then we'll get after it. So join with me one more time. Father, we come to you again in Jesus' name, Lord God. And I love how much we, we, we get to pray. I love how as often as something comes upon our hearts, as often as a prayer or a request or a supplication or something is making us anxious, we get to come to you in prayer, God. And you've, you've punched that door open. You've torn the veil. You've given us access through the blood of Jesus Christ into the Holy of Holies to lay our fears and our questions and our concerns and our, our issues, God, before you and you minister to us. So God, I just pray that you would do that this morning. This, this, this text, this, uh, this teaching, God, it certainly has power to really change and, and affect our lives because it's your word that really is living and active. So God, I just pray that you would anoint my lips to teach your people your word, God, that you would be the teacher. You would be the one who illuminates all truth that brings to our recollection what it is that you want us to, to grasp a hold of this morning, God. We just echo, we echo John when he says, God, Spirit, speak, your church is listening. Speak, God, we are listening. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Acts 11, we're going to be picking it up in Acts eleven nineteen, where we left off last week. But before we get there, we're going to see a very important phrase. And we're going to see it for the very first time in the book of Acts. Really, for the very first time in history, we're going to see a, a, a phrase given. And if you, if you want to look ahead, you can see it. Acts eleven twenty six. it says, And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Think about that. They were called Christians for the very first time in Antioch. And we're going to talk about why that is significant. We're going to talk about what Antioch was all about, what was going on there. But I just want you to consider the magnitude of that. They were first in Jerusalem. That's where the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost. But they weren't first called Christians in Jerusalem. And then they went to Samaria, the surrounding areas of Judea. They went down to, to Ethiopia, to the Ethiopian eunuch. And they've been in a lot of different cities throughout the book of Acts. But they weren't first called Christians there. Right? They're called Christians first in Antioch. It's going to be very significant. But I want you to, to kind of understand that a, an important Bible study principle, when we're trying to study the Bible and we want to know what the Bible has to say and we want the Bible to interpret the Bible, one thing that's helpful is called the principle of first mention. When you see something like they were called Christians in Antioch, you need to know that's the very first time that they're called that. So when you see it mentioned two more times in the scripture, I put them in your study guides, you can know to go back, the principle of first mention, to go back to the first place and see the context, see the, see the, how that concept was first defined because that gives us some information on what it means, right? The, the Bible is consistent. So you see some of those things kind of break down. So we're going to do that this morning. But I just want to establish that they, these disciples of Jesus, these followers of the way, the saints, the brethren, the believers, those who are being saved, those who have been saved, those who are being added to the church, those are all terms that Luke has used in the book of Acts to describe what he's now going to say are called Christians. 
They get a brand new title. They get a new name this morning. And why is that so important? Because that is who most of us, if not all of us in this room are, right? We are Christians. And that is the most common, most popular way we identify ourselves. We say, I am a Christian. And it's important. And what we're going to do this morning is we want to know what does that mean? What does it mean to be a Christian? Is that just my philosophy? Is that just my worldview? Is that just my American heritage? Is that just because I have a Bible in my house? Is that just because I go to a non-denominational Christian church? Right? What is a Christian? And I know there's a lot of definitions swirling around in some of your heads right now. Say, well, I know what a Christian is. And, and maybe you could tell me. Listen, maybe you could, probably you could. But I want to I set the text up to this. What if we just allowed Acts chapter 11 verses 19 through 26 to tell us, show us, reveal to us what a Christian is? What if we just let the Bible define that term for us, not the world or our preconceived notions or, or the, the misrepresentations of Christianity or even some of those good? What if we just let the Bible show us? Wouldn't that be a good way to define something, church, right? Wouldn't it? Yes. And so we're going to do that. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're doing this morning. They were called Christians first in Antioch. And we want to know why. What was happening in Antioch? What was happening for those people there to give these disciples of Jesus that name? Don't you find that interesting? They didn't—the church didn't come up with this. It was the world that says they look like Christians. They're called Christians now. And that's very significant, especially when we see what they were doing. But let's keep all that in mind. We're going to see what's happened. We'll go through the text, and then we're going to loop back, and we'll find seven different things that help us define what it means to be a Christian, what it looks like to walk as a Christian, what it looks like to live in this world as a Christian. So let's pick this up. Verse 19 says this. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus." And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Now we're going to camp out here for for several minutes as we talk about what we just read. But notice Luke, our author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing the book of Acts for us, he is going to take us back to the expansion of the church as a whole. And we talked about two weeks ago, and in fact for the past two weeks we talked about that great transition that is taking place in the book of Acts. How the gospel is going to the Gentiles now. And it's not like they're no longer going to be preaching to the Jews, right? They're still going to go into the synagogues. They're still going to go and preach the gospel to the Jews, but not them only anymore. Now also the Gentiles, all the other nations of the earth, the Jew and the non-Jew. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of salvation. And chronologically, first for the Jew and then also for the Gentile. And we're seeing this exact thing played out in the book of Acts. But as we're seeing this, just kind of remember where we've been at. We talked about the church being birthed on Pentecost.
Pentecost in the city of Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit coming upon the church in power and them now being effective witnesses and that happening right in Jerusalem. But it didn't stay there. It was never going to be contained only in Jerusalem. It was always God's plan to expand. God is a global God. God has a global mission. It's his great co-mission to all of us as Christians to go into all the world, go everywhere preaching the gospel because that is God's heart to save whoever from wherever all who would call upon his name. But I just want you to look back at this verse, an important verse to understand the book of Acts. We've looked at it a few times. I hope it's, it's starting to sink in and even getting memorized. But Jesus speaking, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. We saw that. In Judea, we saw that. In Samaria, we saw that. And now to the ends of the earth. And so where we're at here in Acts chapter 11, as it pertains to kind of the table of contents, the theme for the book of Acts, we're in what I'm calling phase four. And phase four is to the end of the earth. From this point on, we're going to see the gospel now go to the ends of the known world, which is the predominant Gentile world beginning here. And that's amazing. It comes right on the heels of what we talked about last week, what Jesus commanded Peter to go and do, go into the house of Cornelius, preaching the gospel there, watching the Holy Spirit fall upon them, God's affirmation that he has indeed accepted faith, the faith of the Gentiles, and has given them the Holy Spirit, the same spirit, the same way that he gave the Jews on the day of Pentecost, right? They're all Christians now. The new race, the church, Christians. We've talked about that for the past two weeks. I don't need to go into that too much, but Luke's coming back and saying all that happened at Cornelius' house, that was just an appetizer. The main course is about to begin. So Luke comes back in verse 19 and says, back to the overall expansion of the church, there are other disciples who upon the death of Stephen, the first martyr from from the church, upon the death of Stephen, the great persecution arises in Jerusalem and scatters the Christians all over the place. And God uses that. It's his catalyst to accomplish his mission, to scatter the church, scatter Christians carrying the seed, the word of God, and they go preaching everywhere. So he tells us about some disciples who were scattered, and they're going to travel as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and eventually Antioch. Now I want us to, to try and do it, but you, oh man, you can't see that, I don't think. Who, can anyone see that? little bit. Well, there's a map there, right? You can see that part, you know, the blue's ocean, kind of the yellowish. All right, well, this right here is what we're seeing is the Roman Empire in about AD 50, during the time period that the events in the book of Acts are being recorded. And I'll try and point some of these things out. We got Jerusalem here, where the church is birthed. We got the greater area of Judea. These disciples that Luke's telling us about in Acts 11, they're moving north through Phoenicia, over into Cyprus here, and eventually they're going to end up here in Syrian Antioch. Last week I misspoke, and I talked about Poseidon Antioch, but I was incorrect. They're, they're going to go here, but we're talking right here, Syrian Antioch is where they're going to be. Note nearby Tarsus, that where Saul's at, he's going to come into play later. Note where Cyrene is, we're going to see that come into play later, but just kind of see some of these areas. That's where they're going. Luke's telling us, here's where they go. They're going to eventually end up in Antioch, but getting to Antioch in a few more minutes, let's see what else we're told in, in, chapter, in verse 19. It says that they are preaching Jesus, preaching the word to the Jews only. At first, they're just preaching the gospel as they're making their way through only to the Jews because they hadn't heard that the gospel had gone to the Gentiles yet. 
Christianity in its early days was, was initially thought to be a sect of Judaism. It was just, you know, it's, a, it's an offshoot of Judaism. And, and we like to look at it as it's completed Judaism. It's what everything was pointing to in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic Law, all pointing to the seed promise being fulfilled, the Messiah coming, Jesus comes, he doesn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, right? And now he's the way for us to come to the Father. So the one God, the God of Israel, the same God yesterday, today, and forever, unchanging, it's just a completed picture that we're seeing here. But early on, they didn't really understand that. But the gospel's now going to go to everyone, as we've talked about. But they, they don't know that. Some of these disciples, they hadn't been shown the pigs in the blanket vision that Peter was shown, right? They, they don't know what, it, what they're supposed to do yet. So they're just being faithful to show the gospel to the Gentiles. And, and then what happens is they're going to start getting into Antioch and preaching the gospel to the Hellenists which these are the Gentiles in that area. And we kind of want to know, well, how? What compelled them to all of a sudden preach the gospel to the Gentiles? And the answer is, I don't know. We don't know, right? We're not told. Maybe the Spirit of God tells them, maybe the Spirit of God does give them the vision that the Spirit gave to Peter, and they do that. It's certainly possible, right? They have the Spirit. We're going to see the hand of God is with them. God's assisting agency. The Spirit is with them. So maybe, or maybe that news, what happened in Jerusalem, as we talked about, that great truth in verse 18, when they, the church in Jerusalem, the apostles, say, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance of life. Maybe that news, that revelation gets out from Jerusalem. We're always seeing that news gets back to Jerusalem somehow. Maybe news gets out and they find out about it that way. However the case may be, they're going to start preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And I want you to catch that part. Right? Peter is the one who goes to Cornelius' house and certainly opens that door up. God uses Peter to do that. But what we're talking about now, the great revival that is going to break forth in Syrian Antioch, it is all being birthed by a bunch of unnamed, unidentified disciples. That's radical to me. I, in fact, I love that we are not told the name of these disciples because in a section of scripture where we're going to be told it is these disciples that are first called Christians, we see one of our very first definitions of what does it mean to be a Christian? And it is this. It means to be more about the name of Christ than your own name. It means to really say, I don't care if anyone knows my name because my name is not the only name given under heaven that people may call on and be saved, right? I don't care if anyone knows my name. I want them to know the name of Jesus. And so they're unnamed. They're, they're not even identified. And don't think for a second that God doesn't know their names. God knows their names. God knows everything about them and loves them. And he could have spoken to Luke right now through the Spirit and said, oh, write down this name because he knows it, but he doesn't. Because it's showing us something very important about what it means to be a Christian. And the other part I like about it is I want us to see that this could be us. Right? We don't have to fill in the names because we don't have to say, oh, that was a job for the apostles. Oh, the twelve that walked with the Lord since his baptism of John. We can say, no, this, this could be me. This could be you. We are disciples of Jesus called to be filled with the same Holy Spirit, called to be witnesses, called on the same commission, right? Called to let Jesus' name be the highest name, the name above all names, the name on our lips. So I love that. I love, love, love that. They're saying, not I, but Jesus, not me, but he, not 
not my name, but his name. As Paul will say to the Galatians, it's not I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. He'll say to the Philippians, to live is Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to make sure the name of Jesus is what's high and lifted up by our lives. Verse 20, we're given a little bit more information about them that I do find important. We're told that some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene. And we kind of get the idea that there's two of them. There's one guy from Cyprus and one guy from Cyrene. But we don't know. We, we don't know how many there are. We're just told that they're from those two areas. And, and maybe we're thinking, oh, Cyprus and Cyrene. Maybe that's like a sand city somewhere in California or Santa City, right? Where they're probably close to each other. Listen, the only thing they have in common is they're both Cy names, right? C-Y. Look at where these two places are at. Cyprus is right here, this little island off the coastline here. Cyrene is northern Africa, right? They're together on mission, ending up here. But we're thinking, how do they get together? How do two people groups separated by so many hundreds of miles, how do they get together? And we say, oh, Jesus brought them together. They are probably some of those who traveled to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost as the law prescribed them to come for a pilgrimage feast, heard Peter preach the gospel on that day, put their faith in Jesus, and got saved, and then got scattered because of the great persecution that Luke was telling us about. But I want you to catch that. They don't go back home and think, oh, well, that was so great. Jesus saved my life. My eternity is set. Now I just want to go home and just live out the rest of my days in isolation right? They're on mission. They're on mission. The guy from Cyrene, he's not even going towards his home because he has been given new life, a new heart, a new purpose, a new mission, and he wants to make Jesus known to this world, right? Another thing that we're going to pull on from a definition of what it means to be a Christian, being on mission, having a heart to tell a lost and dying world that there is a way to be saved, and his name is Jesus, So that's where they're going. That's what's happening here. An important connection. They have Jesus in common. Now I want us to see this in verse 20. It says, When they had come to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now it says they show up in Antioch and they spoke, right? They opened their mouths and they started talking. They started sharing the Lord Jesus says, and we're saying, friends, that's what they do. Please note, this is going to to, lead to incredible revival in Antioch. An incredible church is going to be birthed out of there. A missional church that's going to go to the ends of the earth. And it all begins by a couple disciples opening their mouth to talk about Jesus. Is that radical to anyone else? That is so awesome to me. Right, listen, I'm not saying it's easy. But come on, it is simple, isn't it? It is simple. It doesn't say, and they rented a venue. It doesn't say they found some billboards, they did a mailer, they set up some tents, they hired a band and a bouncy house and catered in food. Listen, God has used those things to reach people and he will continue to use those things to reach people, but it doesn't say they did that here. They just started talking. They open their mouth and they share with the people around them. 
I want you to try and consider this. How many people throughout history wonder, we, we talk about the gospel message that we preach, it says angels desire to look into it. God, how are you going to save people? How are you going to bring people into right relationship with you? What are you going to do with all these people who are sinners and slaves to sin? How are you going to do it? How many people theorize throughout history, questioning, wondering, how is God going to take the gospel to the Gentile world? We think about in our cities, we wonder, God, how are you going to reach this unbelieving city? How are you going to shine light in such a dark and difficult place? And we just saw the answer. He's going to use Christians to open their mouth and speak about Jesus. Right? It's not easy, but church, come on, it is simple. That's the program. That's what God wants to do. It is so radical to me that he wants to use you and I as his mouthpiece, as his body, as his extremity to do things. When you and I get sick and we need to go to the, go to the doctor, what do we do? We've got to use this body to put it in a car and then go to the hospital, right? When, when we want to go visit somebody who's ill and go pray, what do we got to do? We've got to get this body in motion to go there and pray for that person. How does God want to reach the sick and, the, and, the, and heal the, the brokenhearted or meet those people in need? He uses his body. Who's his body? The church, Right? We are. We are the body of Christ. We're his hands and his feet. So he uses us. That's what he does. You got a problem with that? You take it up with Jesus because that's what his word says. But that's, that's what he's doing here. That's, that's the, the program. That's how this is going to go to the ends of the earth. And we look at verse 20. We see they're preaching the Lord Jesus. And some of us are like, oh, you're kidding me. I'm, I'm supposed to preach? I'm no preacher. I didn't think I was either. And I'm not saying it may end up up here in some capacity, but it might. But I want you to think about it like this. The, the term preaching here, it's the word euangelizo. And it literally means to speak glad tidings or to bring good news. It's where we get our word for eulogy. That's the same meaning. A eulogy is where we're going to speak good things about a person who has passed on from this life. Now some of us, we've been to those funerals. Right, where the person up there is getting the eulogy and the person who passed on really didn't give them a whole lot of good things to share about them, right? They're like, well, you know, I borrowed a shovel one time. Actually, I took it without him knowing and I put it back before he noticed it was gone, right? They're like, he just really didn't have a whole lot of good things to say about him. Listen to this. We have nothing but a plethora of good things to speak about Jesus, don't we? Right? We're not only talking about the one who passed on, the one who died. We're talking about the one who raised anew, again, rise from the grave. And we're talking about saying good things about Jesus. We're talking about eulogizing Jesus. We're talking about letting people know how awesome Jesus is. Right? We're talking about saying, I have this peace in my life, and it's found in Jesus. I have this hope in my life, and it's found in Jesus. I have a contentment, and it's found in Jesus. I have forgiveness of sin. I'm able to be in fellowship with the God of all creation, and it's because of Jesus. I've got chains of addiction broken. I've got chains of bondage broken, and it's Jesus. That's what Jesus has done for me, and he can do it for you too, because the offer is for all. Right? That's what they're doing in Antioch. They're showing up in this place and they're just talking about Jesus. And church, we have to do this, but we get to do it, right? We, ha- we are called to do it. We are commanded to do it, but we also get to do it. We get to speak. We get to share. We get to open our mouths and tell people about how awesome Jesus is. 
But again, I say, that's all they're doing. I'm not saying it's easy. My heart flutters too when the Spirit of God says, I want you to share with that person. I'm like, you want me to do what, Lord? Like, I, same thing happens to me. And then when I'm faithful and God shows that open door and you have that conversation, then you're like on cloud and you're like, I can fly. This is amazing. You're not really flying, but you feel that way because you're like, Jesus is awesome. And all he wants me to be is his mouth and feet to tell people who he is. That's what's happening here. That's what it means, what it looks like to be a Christian. These are all the things that are going to factor in for these people in Antioch to say those people, they're Christians. That's what it looks like. But listen, I want to tell you a story to make this point even more clear. I have a friend who I served with in Campus Crusade for Christ College Ministry. They call it Crew now. And it was, it was very beneficial for me. He went on to be a staff member for them. But listen, this story has always stuck with me. It's a true story. But a, a young college student... A Christian had just finished her first year of college, and she's living off campus, and she, she had a roommate. This roommate's not yet a Christian. So the entire year, this young woman, this Christian, decides, I'm going to live out the gospel for my roommate. She has joy. She's a servant. She's friendly. She's loving. She's going to church every Sunday, Bible studies during the week, but she never once mentions that she's a Christian. She never once takes advantage of an opportunity to share Jesus with her roommate. And so the end of the year comes, and they're going to go back to their homes for summer. They're probably not going to be in the same dorm room again if they ever see each other again. And so they're packing up, they're saying their goodbyes, and the not-yet-Christian, listen, true story, the not-yet-Christian says, hey, I've been meaning to ask you something. I've noticed there's something unique about you, and I really want to know what it is. And this non-Christian says, so are you a vegetarian? Are you a vegetarian, is what she asks her Christian roommate who spent nine months trying to live out the gospel. Are you a vegetarian? Listen, they don't know what it is if we don't tell them it is Jesus. Right? When we're living our lives filled with the Spirit of God and people see that. People see that. Yes, people are watching you and they're seeing what is going on. But if you don't ever tell them, you know what's going to happen? They're going to fill in their own blanks. That's what they're going to do. Oh, that person's probably a vegetation, vegetarian. That, maybe they're in, I don't know. But you know what I mean? Like things are happening here. And, and even in our culture, we live in such a, such a a post-secular culture, which means everything is sacred. Most of these people are so unchurched, they don't even know your Christian lingo, right? We use our Christianese and we say, oh man, glory be to the Lord. And they're like, I don't even know what that means, right? We're thinking, oh, I shared the gospel. And I said, praise God. And like, don't even get it, right? What does that mean? Apple's my God, right? They don't get it. Jesus is salvation. Jesus is the name above all names. Jesus is what makes a Christian identifiable. Christ on our lips, So think about that. It's very, very powerful. That's what's happening here in Antioch. They're preaching Jesus. They're telling people, Jesus is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Jesus changed my life. Jesus saved my marriage. Jesus helped me through the toughest time of my life. Jesus walks with me, has never left me nor forsake me. Jesus has revealed himself to me through his word, and he wants to do the same for you. He's as accessible to you. That's why they don't go back to their places. They go back to find people who don't yet know the Lord so they can 
tell them about it. That's what's going on here. That's what they're doing. And they're doing it in Antioch of all places. And I need to tell you about this Roman city of Antioch because it's going to make everything we're talking about even more applicable. Antioch is not only going to be a very important gathering place for the church, it's going to be a church plant in Jerusalem. We're going to see the whole book of Acts is going to shift its focus off of Jerusalem to this church and what God is doing in Antioch. Saul's going to come back into the mix here. Saul's going to launch out into his missional operation. Saul's going to become the Apostle Paul through the ministry that gets started in Antioch, right? Can't say enough about how powerful that is. But you would have never imagined Antioch was going to be the place where God was going to let his light shine throughout the whole world the way that he did. That is if you're thinking of Antioch from a human perspective. But if you add Jesus to the equation, if you've noticed that you add Jesus to any equation and what is impossible with man becomes possible with God. That's what happens here in Antioch. But let's understand this. At this point in history, Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It's it's smaller only than Rome and Alexandria. There's an estimated 500,000 people living in Antioch. In this day and age, a huge metropolitan city. Now, Antioch specifically, because of some of its trade routes, it is vastly diverse culturally. A lot of different people groups live in Syrian Antioch during this time. So it's known for business. It's known for its trade. And it's known for its immorality. Antioch, much like the city of Corinth, if you read through the letters to the Corinthians, they follow Greek mythology as part of their temple worship. They allow, tolerate, accept ritualistic prostitution. The temple of Daphne, do not Google it, do not search what goes on there, but it is ritualistic prostitution as a means of worship going on right here. So this place, known for its business dealings, known for its vast culture, known for, known for its innovation and its immorality, is that ringing a bell of any place that you think is kind of similar to it, right? I think you know what I'm talking about. But what we have going on here is this is where the gospel is going to go. This is where Christians are going to go and it's going to turn this place upside down. In some churches, I pray not our church, but in some churches, you could probably divide the room right now. You could think of a place like Antioch and you could say that place is so corrupt, it's so dark, it's so immoral. The people there are so licentious. They don't care about God's word. They don't care about God's law. It's eat, drink, be merry for tomorrow we die. If it feels good in the moment, we're going to do it. It must be right. And half of some churches, I pray not ours, are going to say, why in the world would I ever want to go to a place like that, let alone take the gospel there? The other half of the room says, I've never heard of a more fertile place for the gospel in my life. I can't wait to take the gospel there because the darker the place, the, light, the, the brighter the light of Jesus can shine. The greater the bondage, the more epic the conversion when Jesus breaks some chains. And sometimes the more powerful the convert for Christ, telling people, I was blind and now I can see and it's Jesus who did it. They're the latter here. They go into this area saying, I know what God is able to do. And they take the simplicity of the gospel message. They keep it simple and they start sharing with people what Jesus has done. Jesus dying on a cross for the sins of the world. Jesus rising from the grave, conquering sin, death, the devil in the grave. Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father where he sits as judge, as ruler of the living and the dead. 
and then reaches his hand out to save whosoever would call upon his name. That's what they're doing here in Antioch. And I want you to catch this part. God is so into this. They go into Antioch and God is so into them going there, faithfully sharing the gospel. We say, well, how do we know that? Because look at what verse 21 says. It says, and the hand of the Lord was with them. Catch that. The hand of the Lord goes with them right into Antioch, right into the belly of the beast, because God has come to seek and save the lost. God is so into this. His heart is so for this. His will is expressed through his word that this is where he wants Christians to go and do this. And his hand, his very own hand, which is just a euphemism, right? God is spirit. God is, is truth. He's going to be worshipped in spirit. And he doesn't have a hand. It's a euphemism saying that God's assisting agency through his Holy Spirit is going with them. Because that's what they're doing, being faithful to the Lord. But check this out. Right here in Antioch, these Christians bring light. They bring love. They get to bring God's hand into this city, Can you see that? Can you feel the power of that? That's the opportunity we have. When we go into a city, just our presence being there, if we're being what is defined in Acts chapter 11, a Christian, we're bringing the light of God, the love of God, the very hand of God into a city. How radically awesome is that opportunity that God has given to all of us, right? We get to do that. It's not a burden. It is the joy of our lives to represent the God who has saved us and bought us with his precious blood. We just need to share, open our mouths and speak. Don't rule people out as unsavable by what they look like on the outside. Don't judge a book by its cover. Don't define people by the sin they're stuck in. God sees the heart and he's really able to break every single chain. Case in point, look at your own life. Don't forget from the muck and the mire that God plucked you. I, at one time in my life, would have labeled me unsavable, and I would have been wrong, because God's grace is able. God is able to save to the uttermost, from the guttermost, those who would come to him in Christ Jesus. That's what's happening here in Antioch, and a bunch of unnamed, unidentified disciples who are letting Jesus be the name on their lips are right at the center of it. People are getting saved. The end of verse 21 says, a great number believed and turned to the Lord. A great number right here in Antioch, despite everything that is going on here, they're going to turn from the way they've been living their lives and turn to Jesus, and he's going to be the shepherd of their souls and lead them into the place he's going to clean them up. He's going to bring the process of sanctification. Right? That's what the Lord does. Verse 22 says, Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came, he had seen, he, okay, he came, back it up, verse 23 is epic. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he, Barnabas, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. 
So news finds its way back to Jerusalem, right? News is always finding its way back to, to Jerusalem. And we see why here, right? Verse 22 says that I guess Jerusalem's church has ears, right? That's what we're told. They have ears. They're always hearing all these different things. But news of this gets back to Jerusalem. And what do they do? They're going to send out Barnabas to go check this thing out. Now, we remember Barnabas from Acts chapter 4. But remember, Barnabas is not the name his mama gave him, right? He was called Joses back in Acts chapter 4. But the church nicknames him Barnabas, starts calling him Barnabas, because that's who he is in the Lord. That's the spiritual gift that God has given him, a gift of exhortation. He's, he's called the son of encouragement. That's what Barnabas means. And he's a good man, a godly man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And he's going to go to Antioch. He's going to be willing to go there. Now, we also remember from Acts chapter 4, he's from Cyprus. That was, that was kind of Barnabas' hometown. So he's familiar with what's going on here. He's willing to go up to Antioch. But he's going to show up here at this church. And verse 23 is such a circular, a highlighter, an underliner. I even put a bracket around verse 23. I like verse 23 so much. But listen to what he says. Barnabas shows up. And he sees where this church of gather, where this church is gathering. He sees where all these new believers are at. And Luke describes Barnabas' reaction. It says he had seen the grace of God. He shows up and he, just, he sees the grace of God. And I want to ask you, what did that look like? How, what, do you, what, do you, what does he mean when he sees the grace of God? When he shows up and sees all these believers? Well, I'm going to tell you first what it doesn't mean. It didn't mean that he shows up and he sees a bunch of people with their arms crossed, standing over there, looking down their noses at another group of people who are different from them. It doesn't mean that there's a bunch of people separated from one another based upon external differences. It doesn't mean that a bunch of people are bummed out to be there, right? When the grace of God is in a place, it doesn't look like a bunch of people are, oh, you really had to drag me to this place? They are smiling, they are rejoicing, and there is a oneness that is going on when the grace of God is present. There is a love, one for another. They're going to be known to be followers of Jesus by their love, one for another. They have a love, one for another. And I want to know that the, the grace of God, the power of God's love, not only does it cover a multitude of sins, but it's able to transform our hearts and change us from the inside out. Especially when we realize our commonality is not what we've been called out of. It's not what we've been called from. It's what we've been called into. Right? We've been called into this body of Christ. been called into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus. We have been accepted in the beloved. And that is their commonality. That's only something the grace of God can do. Because it's God's grace that's going to say, I'm going to wipe all that clean. Not as if it didn't happen, but because it's been paid for by my son. His precious blood paid the price for all those sins. And grace is poured out unmerited, undeserved favor. Grace is what should describe the body of believers who are going to be walking and called Christians. The grace of God is what Barnabas sees. And then check this part out. He's glad about it. He's rejoicing. He doesn't show up and say, no, this place doesn't look like the Jerusalem church should. I don't like it. This place isn't doing some of the things we do at my home church, so I don't like it. Barnabas shows up, sees the grace of God, sees love, sees commonality, sees people facing Jesus, sees people walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's glad. 
He rejoices over it. It literally says he's exceedingly glad. God is moving. God is saving people. People are coming to know Jesus. This is awesome. In fact, Barnabas only has one thing to say to this church that's now being birthed in Antioch. Verse 23, it says, Barnabas says, all, with all purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. Barnabas has got one sermon for the church in Antioch. He says, with all purpose of heart, continue with the Lord. Make it your sole aim to seek first the kingdom of God. Make it your sole purpose to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He says, that's all I want you to do. Continue with the Lord. And I love that he says that. You continue with the Lord. All ministry is to be born, birthed through intimacy with Jesus. You spend time with him. You spend time worshiping him, in fellowship with him, in communion with him, and he'll take care of all the do's. How many times you're like, man, I gotta do something for Jesus. What are you doing for Jesus? What are you doing for Jesus? It's like, hey, man, I'm being with him. I say, well done. That is going to bring some awesome things through the intimacy that you spend with Jesus. Be with him, Barnabas says. Spend time, continue with all purpose of heart, continue with the Lord. And I want to encourage you Christians, encourage someone this week with these exact words. I'm at a hotel yesterday down in San Luis Obispo with my family and I see a guy with a Bible and he walks up and I get in this awesome conversation with him and I tell him his name's Dave and I, isn't that right, Dave, right? There's always good Daves in life that God crosses my path with. But I, I go, man, I, I said one thing, I said, with all purposes of heart, continue with the Lord. Right, because that that's what you say. Just, just encourage somebody. You get one moment to say something. That's a great thing to say. Encourage spouses. Encourage moms today with all purpose of heart. Continue with the Lord. That Christian coworker, that person that maybe is a client or you find in some capacity, some sphere of influence, that's a Christian. Continue with all purpose of heart with the Lord. Encourage them. Encourage these people. We need to be encouraging one another. And it's a great thing to say. That's what Barnabas does. And it's just the fuel that fires this passion for Jesus here in Antioch because that one message is going to lead to more people added to the church. As the church continues with all purpose of heart with the Lord, God does his part and he adds to his church. That's the way it happens. You continue with the Lord and God does his part. You make Jesus the main thing. You make sure he's high and lifted up and he will draw people to himself. That's what we're seeing here. Verse 25 says, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So here's where we're going to start to loop around and we, and we see the verse that we opened our study with. Now we're not going to read anymore, so rest at ease. We're not going to cover 27 through 30. We'll talk about that next week. But here's our statement. Right here in Antioch, these disciples were called by the world. Those other people in Antioch, these people are Christians. Christ-like. Little Christ is what they're saying. And we can now look back at the text and we can answer that question. What were they doing? What were these disciples in Antioch doing? What were the people in Antioch seeing them do to look back and say they're Christians? Let's identify seven things. Number one, we see that a Christian is a person who has a personal relationship with Jesus. I hope that was part of your definition. To be a Christian means 
to have a personal relationship with Jesus, right? It's to know him personally, to have put your faith and trust in him. It's not a philosophy. It's not a worldview, at least not first. It's having a personal relationship with Jesus. And they do. They're following Jesus. They're, they know him as Lord. They love him as Savior. They're walking with him on mission as witnesses. That's what a Christian is. Number two, it's, it's a person who cares most about the name of Jesus. It was the name of Christ that was on their lips. They're speaking about him. They're talking about him when they rise up. They're talking about him when they lie down. They're talking about him on the way. They're talking with their kids and their friends and their neighbors. They're just talking about him. Right? And listen, it doesn't mean that they do it 100% of the time, but they desire to, right? You're waiting for that opportunity. That's what a Christian is. That's what they were doing. They have a God-given desire for people to get saved, people to come to know Jesus, that they would be in a personal relationship with him. That's what a Christian does. Number three, they desire to walk by the Spirit. They don't want to fulfill the desires of the flesh. They, they want God's hand with them, his assisting agency, his guiding and abiding presence. And listen, it doesn't mean they never stumble and fall. Christians, we struggle sometimes. We struggle sometimes. But we're not satisfied, content in the struggle. We call it what it is, a struggle. When we say, Father, forgive me. I've sinned and I've missed your mark. Fill me again with your Holy Spirit so I can walk with you and be the witness as I'm called to be. Right? That's what Christians do. That's, that's a definition of what a Christian looks like. Number four, they're Christ-centered, not man-centered. We live in, in such a culture that's anthropocentric, which means we're, we're man-centered. We're, we're always wanting to know, what's the best thing for me? What's going to make me look the best? And we want to be Christocentric. We want to make sure Jesus is our aim. As an early Christian, I used to think that as long as Jesus is the biggest pie in my pie graph, then I'm doing that. I'm like, oh, right, check. Or as long as Jesus is the longest bar in my life's bar graph, then I'm like, yes, I'm doing this. Or as long as Jesus is my first priority in my list of priorities, then yes, I'm doing that. But now I say that's not what it means at all. It means Jesus is the very nucleus of my life. He's the very center of everything I do. And everything I do spawns off from him. I do all things for the glory of the Lord. I want him to be praised. And again, it's a goal. It's a pursuit. It's an effort. I don't always get it right. There's grace, right? But that's the aim. That's the desire of our hearts. That's what it means to be a Christian, that it's not about trying to make my name great, but it's about recognizing there's one name, and it's the name above all names, and it's not mine. It's Jesus's. And at that name, every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess, he's great, I'm not. He's Lord, I'm not. He's King, I'm not. That's what it means to be a Christian, to recognize who's truly worthy to be worshiped and praised and followed, and who's just not. And there's just Jesus. Number five, it's seeing the hand of God moving, understanding the grace of God and rejoicing about it, right? Not putting a bunch of burdens or a bunch of strings or a bunch, a bunch of legalism to say, I want to know it has to look like this. Listen, God's grace is called a mystery. It's called the manifold grace of God, which means we don't, we don't quite understand it. But God perfectly gets it, and he wants to save, and he does things in different places, in different areas, but he does things his way, right? And we want to say, well, hey, they're praising the Lord. They're, they're rejoicing over what God is doing, and we praise him. We rejoice over it just like Barnabas did. Number six, they found other Christians to encourage, and they encouraged them with all purpose of heart. Continue with the Lord as we talked about. 
They're lifting up weary arms. They're praying for those feeble knees. They're helping carry another person's cross. They're doing their best to bear each other's burdens and encourage each other to press on. As much as it's called today, encourage one another, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Christians, encourage each other. Encourage each other. Encourage each other. Please, send encouraging texts to one another. Pray for each other. Encourage one another. I think there's even one more thing to add to this list, but we see it here in what Barnabas does. Look at who Barnabas is. Barnabas is not a kingdom builder. Barnabas is just a person who understands he's a servant in the courts of the king. This to me, maybe it's just for me, but it ministers to my heart so much. Here's Barnabas. He's the one who gets sent up to Antioch. He's the one who gets to be at this booming church in Antioch. He's the pastor. He's the one that the apostles from Jerusalem send up there. And if, he, if, he's not, if he's not a radically humble, Christ-like man, he thinks, well, I'm supposed to build this. This is supposed to be my kingdom. I'm supposed to be the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel Antioch. I mean, I would think it'd be called it Calvary Chapel. It might not have been. But he doesn't do that, does he? He's going to see that this church has need He's going to see that Jesus is the king. It's his kingdom. Jesus builds the church. And he sees, I'm just simply a servant in the courts of the king. And so when he recognized that this church in Antioch has need for something he is not able to provide, out of radical humility, Barnabas himself is going to go and find Saul of Tarsus. I think he's looking around at a body of believers. He's encouraging them. And that message is awesome. That message is so needed and so good in the church. But he says, you know what? They they really need to be discipled. They really need a Bible teacher so they can grow in the knowledge of God's word. And Barnabas, maybe the Spirit of God puts on his heart, oh, there's an incredible Bible teacher nearby Tarsus, Barnabas. If you're willing to step out of the way and let me use him. And Barnabas is saying, you better believe it, Lord. And Barnabas himself, he doesn't say someone, hey, see if you can go find Saul and Tarsus. Barnabas says, hey, time out. I'm going to go get Tarsus. I'm going to go get Saul and Tarsus. And he brings Saul back to Antioch and they together co-pastor this church and they teach him for a year. They're going to make disciples. They're going to grow them in the knowledge of the word. But I love that. So number seven, what is a character definer of a Christian? Christ-like humility. Not I, but Jesus. Not my will, but his will be done. All for the glory of the Lord. Barnabas is incredibly humble here, and I think that factors in, because all these people in Antioch, they're watching all these things. They're seeing all these characteristics. Jesus didn't go into this area, so who is the witnesses for them? These believers are. Right? It was one thing for those people in, in Jerusalem or Samaria or Galilee to be like, oh yeah, well, I remember hearing Jesus teach that one time. So I guess they kind of are similar. These are people who never got to see Jesus during his physical earthly three-year ministry. They're seeing now believers and going, man, they, these are Christians. They remind me of Jesus. They're doing what Jesus has done. They're doing what Jesus showed them to do and God is adding to their number. The church is starting to grow. But this is who we desire to be. We need Jesus, yes, but we have Jesus. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but we have that too, right? We've been given that. We just need to ask, Father, fill us with your Holy Spirit. We need to be created who, or we need to be, we need to walk in who we've been created and called to be. We need to be Christians. I, I found this, this picture for the title slide, and I wanted to use it because I think it's just an awesome spiritual lesson. 
we can look at this picture and we can see that there's plants that are green and growing despite living in a dry and a desolate place. And we can look at that and say, well, that doesn't make sense. I mean, how is that possible? Or maybe like, well, all right, it was early spring. It just dried out. They're going to dry out soon. But I want to say, what if this is a spiritual example for us? What if they always look like this when the rain never comes? We say, well, well, the only thing would, that would have to make sense is their root structure has to be getting sustenance from another source, right? And that's exactly the spiritual lesson that I want to point out here. This picture, I think, is indicative of the very area we have been called to live. It is dry, and it is desolate, and it is cracked, and we have to let our root structures be going deep into the Lord, whose fountain never runs dry, so we can remain green and growing despite the lack that this world has to offer. In other words, we need to be Christians. We need to stop saying we're Christians. We need to be Christians. And what is a Christian? One is wholly, entirely dependent upon Jesus. One who, when they thirst, comes to the one who says, Come to me and drink, for I will give you torrents of living water flowing through your outermost being. One, when we're hungry, we say, God, I'm hungry. He says, Come to me. I am the bread of life. And my word is bread. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what we live on. That's our sustenance. We let our roots go deep into those things. That's what it means. I, I, I want to point out these bookends. The Christian life should really be one of those things that on one end it says, apart from Jesus, I can do nothing, right? That's one end of our lives. And the other end says, but in Christ, I can do all things. Apart from the Lord, I am dry and desolate and cracked out, unable to produce anything. But in Christ, I can bloom where I'm planted. In Christ, it doesn't matter what the culture is doing around me. In Christ, I can get everything I need for life and godliness in him. And then I can be green and growing and bear fruit. And that's what I want us to think about when we see this picture. We can see this culture and we can say, it looks like that. And it's been a long time since the reigns of revival have come for the Antioch cities around us. But who did he send here to ask for the rain to come? Who did he send here to be light and to be salt? He sent Christians. He sent you and me. That's why we're here. Don't miss that in the purpose of the pursuit of your life. Be faithful at your jobs. Be faithful. Be diligent. Do all things as unto the Lord. But don't forget the true mission for why you're here. Right? This life is not all there is. We're pilgrims, we're sojourners, we're heading to a city that has an eternal foundation whose builder and maker is God, and this is not it. So don't miss the mission while you're walking through the forested trees. Keep some of these things in mind. Now there's one more thing I want to do as we close out our time together because there's one more thing that a Christian faithfully does is we look back as often as we're able to the broken body and the spilled blood of our Lord Jesus. When we think about mission, when we think about the pursuit, when we think about what we're called to do, when we think about our failures or our successes, they all come back to the cross. They all come back to Jesus and what he's done for us. Again, apart from him, I can do nothing, but in him, I can do all things. So we want to do that. We want to partake of communion and remember his broken body, what he accomplished on that cross, how it is by his stripes we are healed. And we want to take the cup, the cup of the new covenant. It's red, but it's juice because it's reminding us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. 
So if this is you this morning, if you're a believer, I want you to rejoice and, and these elements come around. I want you to hold those, hold the cup, hold the bread. We want to take them together. If you're here and you are not a Christian and you don't yet know Jesus as your Lord, here's an opportunity to do so. This is what it's all about. He loves you. He has called you. He's brought you to this place. He died on a cross for you. And you can see these elements come around and you can see that they're pierced just like Jesus was pierced. He was nailed to a cross. You can see that cup and you say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And you can say, I believe Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And you can put your faith in him for the very first time this morning and then take the blood, take the cup, take the bread and rejoice. Well, let's pass it out. We've got a song to sing. I love this song. It's such a faithful song about, about uh, the Apostles' Creed, some of the, the things that, that we believe and hold dear to. But sing it as it's coming. Take the elements as they pass through and then hold them. And we'll pray out together. Father, we come to you and God, we just rejoice. We're amazed at who you are. God, we're amazed at the title of Christian. And God, I know that that just has been well said by by different people in high administrative positions that, that we will be ridiculed in this world for being a Christian. And whether a high-ranking official said it or not, Jesus, you said it first. That it is to be expected that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, will be ridiculed. But Jesus, you're worth it. You don't ask us to do something that you yourself didn't already walk through as we remember, as we think about these elements right now being passed around. And so God, we love you. We ask that you minister to the secret places of our heart. We ask that you encourage us of the honor it is to be identified with you. We, we pray that we would always be mindful that that's our highest calling, representing you, Jesus. And if there is anyone here who doesn't yet know you, Jesus, I just pray that they would ask you to come and be Lord and Savior of their lives today. That they would come into a relationship with you today, Lord God, that they would watch you break chains, heal afflictions, set them free as as you pour out your Spirit upon them. So come, Holy Spirit, minister to this place, affirm these things that we're talking about, bring illumination to your word, point us to Jesus. We love you and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.